Part to hear with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Compose Melbourne is a new functional programming conference focused on developing the community and bringing typed functional programming to a wider audience. It is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 29th and 30th of August of 2016. The first day features a single track of presentations, followed by a second day of workshops and an unconference. It is a new sister conference of the New York-based Compose Conference. ElixirConf is taking place August 31st through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. The two days of conference are on September 1st and 2nd, with an optional training day on August 31st. The conference includes five training courses, which provide six hours of hands-on instruction. Visit ElixirConf.com to register and to find out more. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be composed of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erling, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Fullstackfest's bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erling User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Peyton Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and the Erling co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the lineup can be found on their website as well. And all attendees are entitled to participate in complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson and Kista. Early bird tickets are available and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKRY10. Visit www.erling-factory.com slash EUC2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con dot bracket dash lang dot org. PWLConf 2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon and further the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLCon for $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on PWLConf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World will be taking place on September 30th and October 1st of 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue an old tobacco factory in Cadiz, downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use it for. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for early bird tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. The 2016 edition of Scala I.O. is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France, on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala I.O. is a nonprofit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. 
The regular tickets are still available for 100 euros. The call for proposals is already open and closes Sunday, September 4th, September 2016. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. Codemesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit Codemesh.io to submit your talks, register, and to sign up for email updates to find out more as information becomes available. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conference around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor. And this week with us, we have Susan Potter. Susan, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yes. So I am an infrastructure engineer who's working on trying to make sense of distributed systems. And I've been trying to do this in a variety of ways over the years. But lately, I've been kind of getting more into functional programming and the reasoning aspect that functional programming gives us to help us be able to reason more. So systems engineer, did that start out as just playing with hardware and the operating system, or did that come about as getting into software and then figuring out how to actually make it work and make it run? How what was the progression of getting into doing this from your start? Sure. So I actually started doing web development kind of many years ago, but more on the server side. So one of my first languages was Perl 4, right, doing some CGI work. And that was interesting, but a lot of the backend work still involved doing a lot of system administration and things like that. I was a software engineer on the backend services at financial companies and things like that for a number of years, mostly in Java and C++. But I still kept getting pulled into kind of the operation systems and performance kind of engineering side of things. And so in the last five years, I've really kind of been much more anchored towards trying to automate infrastructures for larger distributed systems and where there's different roles of parts of the application and what are the, what kind of guarantees can we make about these things, if any, right? And things like that. So that's kind of been my progression over the last 17, 18 years. And it sounds like you actually kind of had the interest as well if you kept getting pulled in or was that just something that you were pulled in without an interest and it eventually grew on you? Was that the, I'm curious to know how this works because I want to understand the deeper system or, hey, Susan, we need you to go off and do this because everybody else is busy and this is essentially bug duty. Yeah, I mean, I think for a large part of it, it was a little bit being pulled into it, partly because other people weren't available or because you know, it was directly to, related to the, prod, you know, the product or the software that I was actually building, right, and trying to get deployed. 
I also think, you know, there was an interest in me understanding, you know, how things worked lower level on the, you know, operating system, scheduler side and things like that. But I think for a large part of it, initially, it was very much, yeah, hey, Susan, you need to go and do this because you're the right person for it or whatever, right, at the time. But over the years, I've realized that more and more of the applications and services are actually written in less reliable languages, I'll say, right, or languages that are harder to reason about. And as a result, it makes the infrastructures much more important. And so I'm kind of gravitated to that calling, right? Um, trying to make things much more reliable and predictable and deterministic on the infrastructure side. And I was kind of trying to contrast that with my experience and others, because if you kind of get into doing some operational stuff, whether or not it's full on ops and managing the servers and upgrading the kernel, or just being responsible for understanding how you deploy the system, whether it's something as ad hoc as a Capistrano if you're in Ruby or using something like Chef or Puppet or Ansible or some of those things or even go on full-on hardcore dependencies of knowing here's what my system should look like. I've noticed there is also the dependency on does that come from the small company environment where you kind of have to fill whatever role or you're in a larger environment or the roles are more segregated where you are a web developer and you do the web development and how that gets deployed and how that gets set up behind load balancers and everything else is not something that is raised to your attention of concern. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the size of the company and the kind of business matters in that case, because uh, earlier on in my career, I was working for a small consulting shop at the very beginning. Then I moved into the financial services arena and uh, for much bigger companies. But even there, because there was this much greater sense of ownership for the products that you were working on, even though they were only being consumed internally by traders or analysts and things like that, there was this, hey, I need to solve this, right? And so there was this much more of a an ownership emphasis when I worked in financial services for the software that you wrote versus, I think, in a lot of software and technology companies that I've worked in since where there is a segregation. And that's not universal across all of the financial services companies, probably, but that was my experience prior to, to moving into tech and, and software. And then you mentioned taking that role and started looking for things more reliable. Mm. Is that one of the things that got you interested in functional programming was hearing the people say, hey, you can reason about your code easier, which means if I can reason about it easier, it means I can probably start to make it more reliable because I have a better idea of what's going on. Or what did that evolution look like of your first exposure to functional programming and what started getting you to pick up the ball and take a look at it more to the point that you're, you, you've picked up a couple languages now and at least play with them and are familiar with them if you're not using them in your day-to-day -day mm -hmm. work. Yeah, sure. It's a great question. And I'm going to be completely honest. I got into functional programming completely by accident. And I don't think that the notion of trying to make things predictable was a at the forefront of my mind uh, about 10 years ago. It was probably there tangentially, right? But it wasn't something that I was constantly thinking about, which is what I tend to think about today constantly. So about 10 years ago, I was a Java head that loved Python metaprogramming in my spare time. 
I thought Java with a sprinkling of Python would solve all of my problems. So forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. But until that point, I hadn't really worked in anything other than C, some object-oriented languages like C++, Java, a little bit of Python. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my first language was Perl 4. Well, that was before they had any kind of object-oriented stuff. But so again, forgive me. But so a little over 10 years ago, I was working at a financial technology firm that had clients in their hedge fund, proprietary trading and fund management space. The company primarily used C++ and Java for a lot of the long-running server kind of components. And it had this set of Perl and Python code bases for the market data ingestion side. And at the time, I was really quite happy being the master of my domain, both from a business domain perspective and also what I thought was a technical domain, with the be-all and end-all of abstraction with my object-oriented design patterns and architecture patterns that I read religiously in the evenings. Nothing wrong with those things, but yeah, that was my kind of state of mind at the time. And then one day I came into work and my manager called me to talk about taking over a project that a former coworker had left. It had been on the market data ingestion side of the house, which wasn't something I was very familiar with, but I figured it was like Perl or Python. It turns out that no one actually investigated this before the person left. The code base deviated from the norm at the company. It was written in Haskell. Haskell was a language at that time that I don't think I'd ever heard of before. And I had no idea really what functional programming was. So this is like 2005-ish. And it wasn't uh, object-oriented, so I was completely, it was completely insignificant to me in terms of the world order of programming that I perceived at the time. And I'm trying to paint a picture of a very smug object-oriented programmer because that's really what I was at the time. And really, nothing's changed in terms of the smugness factor, just that I'm not an object-oriented programmer. Sorry. So the code base ingested data feeds provided by market data vendors and for the exchange-traded options, right? And then put it into our market data data store. So I dug into the code base more, really had no idea how to build this thing, like even build it to be able to run it. We have some old binaries on some old servers. But that didn't do me very much good in terms of trying to make changes to the code base. And uh, so it was a totally foreign uh, world to me, but close to the deadline of when I actually needed to make some changes so that we could actually process some of the feeds that were upcoming for options expiry and stuff like that. I realized I wasn't making any progress on setting up the dependencies and the environment on my local machine. So I booted up my old coworker's machine that thankfully was still in the corner of the office. And my amazement within like a few minutes, I was actually able to compile the latest state of the project and then be able to iterate on it. That's like the sad state of affairs that was. So anyway, the next day I learned all about parsing and Haskell and stuff like that. I barely made my deadline, but I did. Amazingly, I really didn't understand anything at that point. So this was my kind of introduction to functional programming and nothing made sense at this point. But then the next couple of months, I kind of started getting into it, started trying to understand things. Even after a couple of months of trying to get into this stuff, I had a number of other commitments at work, so I couldn't actually work on this full time. And I still didn't really understand what functional programming meant. And it wasn't until 
couple of years later, when I got into an Erlang project at a different company that I started to see what functional programming may actually be a little bit about. And so you pick up Haskell. And Barely. this is back in, well, you pick it up because you have to do something in it, right? Yeah. So this is back in 2005. Mm -hmm. From what I've heard, it didn't sound like the resources back then were all that extensive. Mm -hmm. You at least had an existing code base that you could kind of look at and attempt to decode versus mm -hmm. having to say, oh, we need this written in Haskell because of this other stuff. Go run at it. I'm sure that it was fraught with trials and tribulations, but what did that look like back then as you were trying to grasp that straws to understand what was going on in this completely foreign code base with this completely foreign language in this completely mm -hmm. foreign paradigm where you're like, I've got to use a coworker's old laptop just to even get this going. What was that mm -hmm. looking like as far as the state of education around there? Did you find that there were starting to be some stuff and if you actually had the time, you could do it or it was a free for all or you went from, I can't even compile this thing to eventually being able to work on your own computer and get some of this resolved. What was that looking like? Yeah, uh, for me, the Haskell mailing list at the time was really the best resource that I could find. I mean, there was um, some remnants of documentation and stuff like that, but it was really much more geared towards people in the academic space that were using it. At least my limited findings were. And the mailing list was a great resource. And the ecosystem of Haskell DHC at that time was extremely different to what it is today. It's a much more mature environment, much more stable. There is actually documentation. And a lot of it is starting to become very consumable for people that don't even have very strong backgrounds in functional programming from a theoretical perspective. And so that's really uh, quite an exciting thing to see over the years. Today, we've got Cabal Sandbox, Stack, and even using Nixshell, in my case, for setting up Haskell project dependencies and environments for more consistent development environments, right? And that's really exciting to me uh, to be able to see that change. At the time, really, it just came down to talking to people. And at the company, no one else had any Haskell experience. It wasn't like I could just go and t talk to people at the company because the only person that had any idea what Haskell was had left the company. So it really just resulted in me, you know, emailing people and trying to figure stuff out as best as I could. It wasn't until many years later that I even understood what it was that I was doing on the parsing level. I realized that this worked, you know, in code because there were some kind of examples out there, but I had really no idea how I got from A to B for the most part at that time to this particular project. And so it's great to see the changes that have come across since then, comparing it to today where I do actually have a couple of Haskell projects that I'm working on. And it's been a decade. And in that time, if you can remember, if you're going into Haskell and learning Haskell first, that seems like jumping into the super deep end of the pool, if not uh, being thrown into a deep river or the ocean in the middle of the ocean kind of thing. Because mm -hmm. what you have is you've got the combination of just the functional mindset, the purity in the functional mindset, because you have more pure versus impure languages, you have the typing, and I'm sure there's a number of other things in there with Haskell that is a lot to take in. Do you remember anything clicking versus not, or was it just like that was all the same to you and you couldn't actually distinguish any bits and pieces of those, or were there certain things that you were starting to grasp as you were taking this first Haskell a decade ago? 
Yeah, I think the type system really grew on me very quickly. Um, although I didn't understand how things worked in the background for some kinds of types, like the higher order types and things like that. But I'm like reading the, I was a math major uh, at university, but I had forgotten all of, all about that, right? Apart from my uh, statistics and numerical analysis stuff when I was working in financial services. But I realized that some of the pure and abstract stuff that I had learned at university may actually be kind of interesting from a thought process perspective. And I started seeing similarities there from looking at the type signatures and stuff like that in Haskell and seeing some similarities between various things. You've got functors and monoids and things like that. These are all just algebraic structures. So that's kind of cool to see that you can actually think about a structure based uh, off of the, the properties that it possesses and relate that back to an area of research that has really great minds, much smarter than me, doing this stuff day in, day out and over centuries, that we can just be able to take these results that smarter people have done and be able to leverage that. That's like a, an amazing kind of piece of reuse. And that, and that I started to acknowledge some of those things quite early on. I don't think I came to a great realization until more recently on the, exactly how that all worked together. And yeah, I figured it probably wasn't the grand aha moment that you get if you're work only working on this little bits of a time after a few months. But you start to get the insights of, there does seem to be something here. I'm not quite sure exactly what or why, but I, I, I'm circling around something there that I'm sure I will get in the future that seems at least worth more interesting to check out kind of thing. Yeah. And then you mentioned algebraic types. Can you give... Just a high-level overview, if you think you can, about what that is, just as a refresher for anybody who's listening who hasn't made that world or is coming through and listening and hasn't really heard much of the other episodes around Haskell or F-sharp or some of these others, which actually talk about some of these higher-kinded types and the algebraic types and how those are different from just normal types you think about. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to split this up a little bit, if that's okay. So there's algebraic data types, which a number of different functional languages sort of support out of the box. OCaml, uh, Haskell, Idris, and probably a lot more. I don't know a lot of different languages, but I know that a lot of uh, data type functional languages do support them out of the box. Scala offers the ability to express these things, but they're not like part of the language innately. But the idea here is, so an algebraic data type, it could be a, there are different forms of algebraic data types. There's um, some types, or some people call it co-product types. You can think of this as kind of like an enumeration type. So as an example, you might have a type called US coin or something like that, right? And then you've got the penny, you've got uh, um, the nickel, you've got the dime, right? You've got the quarter, you've got a dollar coin or whatever. And so those would be, you've got the type, which is US coin, and then you have these constructors, value constructors or data constructors that are allowable. They're mutually exclusive for a particular value. So you can create a value of type US coin that's a nickel, right, using the nickel constructor. And then these are mutually exclusive. So any one value of a US coin is one of these things, and it can't be anything else. So these are closed types, typically all of the algebraic data types. 
There's also this thing called a, a product, which is much more similar to case classes in Scala, if you're familiar with them, or typical objects or whatever in Java, where you have maybe five or six different fields or n different fields that represent some type. And you can instantiate that through a constructor, giving the n different fields. So a user will have a screen name. That's one field. It'll have a display name. It may have something else, right? A bio for the user, which is a long piece of text. And you're creating a product of three different strings. So that's kind of what a product is. And you can mix those two things together. So you can have an enumeration or a sum constructor. So you can have like n different constructors. And then inside of there, you can pass in different fields to those constructors. So it's some kind of hybrid of the two. And then some languages support recursive data structures. So for example, a tree, right? You may have a tree of some underlying type. So at the node, maybe you put ints at the leaves for the value. Say a tree of A's, right, can be represented as either a leaf, and then you give the integer value for that particular constructor, or the other possible constructor for a tree could be like a, a tree that takes um, a left tree and a right tree, for example, if you're doing that kind of thing. And so you're building into the definition like this recursive data structure. So there we just introduced this kind of higher order thing where we've provided a parameter, a type parameter, not just a parameter to the data constructors. So here we could swap out the, the value at the leaves, for example, with uh, strings or some other type just by changing the argument to a type not the data constructor, but the type. And so you can think of generics in C-sharp and Java, such as, you know, lists or maps, you know, going from string to string or whatever. So map would be, in Haskell speak, would be a type going from star to star to star. And that just demonstrates that you have to provide it two type parameters, the two first stars, to produce a concrete type. So that's a, specifically to Haskell, that's the way they think about it. But the idea of higher order types is that you can have multiple arguments to give to a type so that you can specialize it more. And then you only deal with generic types. And some of the benefits of dealing with more generic types is that you can actually say more about the properties of that type if they're actually more generic than if they are uh, concrete types. Like, for example, a function f that takes a, a tree of ints and a tree of ints and produces a new tree of ints. Well, there's many things that f could actually do because there are many, many different operations that you can do on an int itself, the underlying value inside of that structure. But if it was a tree of a and a tree of a, and then you've got a, a new tree of A as a result, then you could probably say, well, that doesn't make too much sense. Uh, how would you go about doing that if you don't know anything about A? But if you then had a function going from A to B, for example, and then it took a tree of A's, and then it returned a tree of B's, then you could probably figure out that all you're doing is at all of the leaf nodes, you're just applying that function to the values, right? And producing that tree of B and things like that, that you can start reasoning about or coming up with um, kind of little theorems or hypotheses about 
what the functions could actually be doing underneath the covers. And the more you can limit that, the better, because then there's typically less and less space for bugs if you can get it to compile that way. That was partly what you were talking about. But then there's different algebraic abstractions or data structures, as I have previously called, which maybe I shouldn't have said that, but such as functor and applicative and monad and things like that, which allow you to have, um, in addition to a specific type structure, a set of operations or combinators of functions that allow you to combine these different type structures together. And, um, and it's a kind of a rich set of vocabulary and abilities that are kind of granted you by using those common abstractions, which actually a lot of types do generally fit depending on the, the domain and the problem that you're working with. Okay. And I think that clears up some misconceptions I had because I was thinking that even things like the tree recursive stuff didn't fall into the higher order types. And I was conflating a couple of different ideas when it could be refined even more. So I think that becomes helpful, at least to me. So I'm sure it's, it'll be helpful to others to get that description that you have compared to some of the other descriptions that are out there as well. Cool. And so then you play with Haskell and work. You're trying to, I call it play because it's all experimentation and you're not quite sure what you're doing and you finally mm -hmm. get stuff working. But then you go on to another job where you start doing Erlang and you said that was when things started to click. Was it seeing the commonalities between the two or was it just something about Erlang and the way that set up that made some of those other things more obvious to you? What did that transition look like from going from Haskell to picking up Erlang? And then we can dig into some of the stuff that you found nowadays as you are more familiar with each, but making that transition. What was that feeling like and what was that journey of understanding functional programming better, as you said, started to happen? Yeah, so Erlang was this period of my career where I kind of had this greater enlightenment about isolation and separation of concerns on a much higher level than on the code level. It took a little while to digest initially, but when you start to learn about the Erlang runtime system and things like that, you start to understand, hey, you've got these Erlang processes that run inside of the VM. And the way that they communicate is through message passing. And they're effectively, there's some details that I'm going to lie about because it's not really that relevant to the general idea. But like you basically copy the messages so that there's no dependencies between these processes from a memory perspective. That's not technically true with some types of data, but that's because they can safely do that. But the idea here is that you want to be able to decouple these things and provide this higher level kind of protocol or interface to consumers of your code. And that then can get consumed by this looser coupling of message passing. And then the great thing about Erlang is that it teaches you, maybe in the hard way, if you're not doing it right the first time, that you just need to allow things to fail. And this doesn't necessarily work exactly the same way in, in Haskell, because these are two fundamentally different things philosophically, languages and environments to work in. But it's a similar idea. So in Haskell, you would perhaps encode error cases in the type that's returned so that you know how your function will actually behave. And you know whether or not that function is truly pure or not. 
for example, if there's a case where you get back something from the system API in Haskell, that's basically a null. Well, what do you do? Do you just, you can do exceptions in Haskell too, if you really want to or need to. What do you do at that point? Well, one of the better things to do would be to return um, a maybe of A or whatever that underlying type is. And you've kind of solved it from that perspective. And so if you're interfacing with systems or CE APIs and things like that in Haskell or whatever, you have to think those things through. And you tend to think about those things on the type level. In Erlang, it's not exactly the type system that does this, but you're basically describing a protocol that consumers can expect from you. And what happens if your consumers do something else? Well, one of the better things to do is to actually either ignore it or like maybe just pass it along to some kind of dead letter thing or something like that along those lines. It really does depend on the needs of your system. And it forces you to actually then think about what is actually important from an operational semantics perspective of your system that why are we doing this in the first place? Um, is it really important that we don't drop anything on the floor? How do we go about enforcing that? Or do we actually not care? Do we only care about the latest messages if we get overloaded for some reason? Or something along those lines. And I think that that was something that Erlang and Haskell do fundamentally differently. But it's the same idea that you are separating concerns. You are basically building interpreters. So when you're writing a gen server in Erlang to be able to respond to certain messages, then you are basically just writing an interpreter. You are saying, okay, well, I received this message, this command message or whatever. Now I need to do this. And that's kind of the way that you're dissecting the problem by just building interpreters, which is kind of the same thing that you end up doing in a lot of cases in Haskell, where you've got these structures that represent programs. I'm going to use the M word when you're building up monads or free monads or whatever structures and um, values. You're representing a program as a value to then later be interpreted or performed. You can write your own interpreters or you can pass it to something that the system or the runtime's already provided. So like unsafe perform IO and things like that, you don't directly call that in Haskell, but like in Scala, if you're trying to be functional, if you're using Scala Z or something like that, you would call that on the very end of the world, so to speak, after you've built up your IO of units or whatever value that represents your whole program. And so then this allows you to programmatically construct your program, which is a truer kind of representation of metaprogramming that many people may be somewhat familiar with in, say, Python or Ruby, but it's a much more well-defined way of doing this by separating all the concerns as opposed to injecting code at dangerous parts of your system. I mean, Python's perhaps a lot more constrained in this fashion than, say, Ruby, but you can inject new pieces of code and things like that. And this is somewhat similar to AOP, you know, aspect-oriented programming and stuff like that, which was something I was very into before I came across Haskell. And that was, yeah, so there's a lot of similarities there, but it's doing it in a more structured or a well-defined way and allowing you to separate concerns so that you can just work with values to represent your programs and then decide when and how you actually interpret those programs later. And I think that's a very powerful thing that keeps cropping up all over the place in functional programming. 
it may not be obvious to everyone. Even Erlangers, that's kind of how things are structured, but tends to be a, a very similar on a high meta level kind of way that functional programming in the languages and environments that I've experienced tend to dissect problems into. So it was more the concept at the system level, functional programming as a system, as a process that helped you apply it down to a more refined level then and start to see the better picture because if I've got the small little process that's doing this thing, it takes something in, it does an action and potentially returns something, potentially doesn't. Yes. Where that thing's isolated, it was able to map that concept down from the high level down to the concrete level inside the code as well then. Yeah, absolutely. Just understanding the importance of the separation of concerns and that there's this uh, very common way of solving a problem in functional programming that, sure, it looks very different in different languages, but they're effectively the same thing conceptually. And about how long ago was this transition to Erlang? You said you started the Haskell in 2005 and then you started getting into Erlang at what point after that? A couple of years later, so 2007-ish, I transitioned to a company that was doing some interesting risk management. So it was soft real time. It wasn't for low latency markets or anything like that, but some of the higher value deals that were being evaluated and sent to counterparties to actually make the trade and things like that. We were building kind of in memory sort of um, state of the different portfolios, the different desk positions and things like that. As the day proceeded, it was very much an event sourced architecture for the most part. And it would just read in a whole bunch of events from what actually happened on the one side. And on the other side, we were actually evaluating risk based off of um, these kind of values. And it was kind of just, you could think of this as a replicated state machines where we had multiple copies of these things across the cluster and we would receive a message and then do the routing and respond back based off of what level of risk assessment we really needed to do on such a deal. So the deal would come in or the deal profile would come in to be evaluated before it was actually like sent ahead and executed. But the, you know, it was kind of a really interesting project. I love working with the people that I worked with there. They were very thoughtful, um, really thinking about isolation, very, very Erlang-oriented isolation and fault tolerance and things like that. And allowed me to understand distributed systems in a whole new way, in ways that I hadn't really understood before. And the reason I'm getting at that timing was I had Garrett Smith on, and he was talking about some of the Erlang and the operational mindset that Erlang ties well with and thinking about those things that you were describing. And it seemed to align with what he was talking about, where he was going at it from the other side of people who've actually run apps in production, like Erlang, because of that thought and that guidance that gives it to you. So I was wondering, was it similar kind of thing, but just flipped where you got into Erlang, you started thinking about this, and this is what started triggering, you said about five years ago, was the reliability engineer or the operation side of you starting to kick in where you're thinking about this was that the Erlang background as well that kind of influenced you in this direction or did they kind of just line up together and how have you found those things play and with your Haskell as well when you're doing your Haskell yeah I I haven't really thought about that but it probably was critical as a precursor to getting more interested in infrastructure and operations because 
it does the simplicity of just separating things, isolating things, and thinking through higher level contracts between parties and how you actually combine these things together in a, in a working system. Everything from the ground up in Erlang, you've got a release, which is basically the distribution of your service that you actually run in your Beam VM process, like operating system process. And then inside of there, you've got all of these OTP applications, and they all work together in different ways, and they call each other. And thinking about how those systems collaborate and communicate with each other, yeah, it, it absolutely, that definitely translates on the operational side. And building out infrastructure is how you actually automate a deployment of a non-trivial distributed system that has many different kinds of components that need to talk to each other. And when you think about this, and you kind of started talking about some of those differences of Erlang and Haskell, and it kind of goes around to this operational side, but it's that reasoning. And you mentioned the reasoning of things with types, but you also mentioned the reasoning of things with how the smaller different processes and components and nanoservices, for lack of a better term, for the Erlang processes and applications actually work together and collaborate. How have you found that balance of, well, I want my types, but I also want the ability to think about the smaller pieces and how those are going to interact? Do they kind of mesh well together or are they at odds or how have you found that balance? Great question. So the I'm getting more and more into type-based reasoning and typed functional reasoning. So both the static and uh, more expressive type system that you've got in, say, Haskell. There are actually problems with that, but we'll defer that for another thing. The way that you think about types is, is really important, of course, in Haskell. It allows you to understand what holes you have in your program as you're pushing the data through some kind of pipeline to yield a result that hopefully resembles a solution in the business sense for the problem at hand. And you can use some really great mathematical thinking to actually get you through thinking through a lot of consequences before you've even written code, potentially, or you've written just type signatures, perhaps. And you can spot design problems before you even get to that point. Now, in Erlang, one of the techniques that I used, even though it isn't a statically typed language, we did actually specify the type specs inside of our modules for the different functions that we were exposing and things like that. And that allowed us to then understand the interaction between the different things, what was allowable, what wasn't. We used tools like Dialyzer, of course, and a variety of other tools that Costas probably implemented or his grad students and found a whole bunch of bugs for us before we even had to ship. And so there's a lot of similarities there. It's just done in a slightly different way. But the two are, of course, there's a deviation in terms of exactly how you go about doing this stuff. But there's also a lot of similarity between, for example, Erlang and Haskell in terms of the, the mindset and the process of thinking through how you design your applications, have the different parts of your application work together. I am actually really excited about, and I know it's kind of stagnated it a little bit, Cloud Haskell as a project, because it's really a great homage to Erlang and OTP, acknowledging how many things Erlang and OTP really got right. But at the same time, trying to bring a more typed sense to how maybe we could iterate and improve on that. But it provides a fantastic foundation 
for being able to build distributed systems. And so I'm excited to see how that could evolve further. Um, it's gone through some various fits and stops and whatever, but it's definitely a, a project that I, I keep uh, checking into and seeing what we can do there. I think that more needs to be done on the commercialization or the usability from a programmer perspective of it. There is some really great documentation, but there's also a lot of room to improvement. And hopefully if I get to a point where I can contribute some of that stuff back, I'd love to be able to get involved in that side of things because that's where I think I could be potentially useful on that project. But that's an area that I'm very excited about because I think we can kind of marry expressive types. It's not just about static types, but it's also having a solid type foundation where you can do all kinds of things like higher order types and being able to extend behaviors of types in a reasonable way, such as with type classes and things like that, as well as generalized ADTs and things like that, GADTs, that provide a little more ability to understand the purpose or the, how should I say, the intent of the program in the first place to eliminate a whole bunch of potential fuzzing or a fudge factor in terms of what was it really intended to do here and things like that, but still keeping it flexible and extensible. And that's what I was wondering. And you seem to give a pretty good rundown from your perspective, because there seemed to be something about the reasoning of types that you get with a pure script or Haskell or some of these other languages, and maybe even Idris from my brief exposure to them compared to the reasoning of your process structure, your supervision tree, and your applications in Erlang, where you're having to start to think about that up front and how these things will work and what the message looks like and what the error conditions are, as you alluded to earlier, whether or not you use a maybe monad or you let it crash and figure <laughs> out what happens. And there seem to be, as you said earlier as well, alignment in the philosophy, but two different practical approaches. So wanted to dig in a little bit more now that you had kind of explained your views on Erlang as well. Yeah, I mean, like the let it crash philosophy is a fantastic philosophy. And I think that you can still utilize that inside of a well-typed environment such as Haskell with something like Cloud Haskell, where you're ensuring that the logic to actually retry or restart, for example, these child processes exists at the right level. So I think that if you look at object-oriented code bases, at least the object-oriented code bases that I was a part of, some very large OO code bases in C++ and Java, what I tended to see a lot was it was very, very hard to find the right level to put in error handling code because a lot of error handling was done through exceptions where you were unwinding the stack. And you often, at a very high level, you often didn't necessarily have all of the context that was needed to be able to restart things, for example, like a computation or something like that. But at the same time, if you put it too far down, then you got into this problem where you had to then know about some more global understanding of the system. And there are certain points in the code bases where I just... Maybe I'm just especially bad at this, but there didn't seem to be a really great answer for at what point um, you put this stuff in for some cases. And I think that just talks to how using exceptions for control flow is perhaps not the most ideal idea. And that's something that I think a lot of 
functional programming languages agree on as a general mantra, how far they take it is different. But I think that that's something that's really exciting to me, being able to get a more reasonable system where you've got the logic for retrying, rebuilding, and things like that in a more appropriate place. And then having the logic that's internal that should be encapsulated inside of uh, smaller units that it only needs to know about those things. And then it just, if something bad happens, then that's okay. Something above it is going to take care of it. And being able to separate things out like that is really powerful and leads to much simpler designs where you don't end up having to wonder exactly what's going to happen sometimes. I mean, you should always be testing stuff, right? This is not a substitute for not actually running your software before you ship, but this definitely helps a lot, being able to put the logic of the error handling in the more appropriate places than if you're using something like stack unwinding exceptions for control flow, which is very common in object-oriented code bases, in my experience. Okay. and. We're closing in on time, so I'd like to still dig into that more, but there's one last topic I want to circle back around because you mentioned it in passing, and I know you've been working on it with regards to getting packages for different languages in it, but that is Nix. So can you give a rundown of Nix, what it is, and what appeals to you about it? Because I don't know that many people have heard about it, and my first exposure to it was, I think... Eric Merritt talking about some packages and then you hopped on and a couple of other people were talking about it, but I've still only got a vague idea of what it is. So can you dig into what it is, why it's appealing to you and some of the stuff that you found around it before we start wrapping up? Yeah, absolutely. So Nix is a package manager. Nix by itself. Then there's this thing called NixOS. I'm just going to introduce a couple of terms quickly and then see how they weave together because they're all kind of dependent. So NixOS is a GNU Linux distribution that's based on the Nix package manager. And not only is it based on the Nix package manager, it also allows you to write an, oh, I should, I did a very bad disservice. Nix is two things. Sorry. It's a package manager, right? And it's also an expression language. So this is problematic, perhaps, but we'll have to deal with this. So NixOS is a, a GNU Linux uh, distribution based on the Nix package manager, but also it allows you to write a Nix expression in the Nix language to configure your whole system. And it will take care of building that system image for you and managing that as long as you've got a valid Nix expression to define your system configuration. So what this allows me to do is I have a tablet at home, which it's actually a, a Surface Pro 3, and I run Nix OS on it. And I've written a Nix expression that has all of the dependencies that I actually want installed for the system dependencies in a very simple expression language. Actually, Nix is an untyped expression language. And it allows me to make sure that I've installed the appropriate system level dependencies and things like that. And Nix as a package manager is what they call a functional or deterministic package manager. It means that unlike other package management systems like Yum and Apt, you really do have to define all of your inputs to a build. And inputs are not just dependencies on other libraries 
and things like that, but also the build script that is used, right? Because if you're building an Nginx binary with different static modules built with it, that should actually be a different binary than Nginx with a different set. And it can still be the same release number, but they should actually be different binaries. They should be stored in different path locations. And the way that the next package manager kind of handles this is it just takes a cryptographic hash of all of the dependencies, all the way from actual third-party package dependencies to the build script to all of these other things as part of the definition of the package, and takes a cryptographic hash of all of those dependencies, and it stores it in a unique path. And then Nick's package manager takes care of setting your paths appropriately. So there's a, a lot of boilerplate and stuff like that that Nix takes care of in terms of setting up your paths appropriately, your system level path, as well as your user environment. And so this enables things like per user based configurations. So I can be logged into one system and I have a user profile that installs Haskell 7.10.3, but I don't care about Python perhaps, but another user really does care about Python 3.4 or something. So they've installed Python 3.4. I don't see Python 3.4, their version, in my path or my environment when I log in. It's the same box. They don't see Haskell when they log in, unless they define it and they want to install it. This also means that you can have multiple versions of the same thing. So try installing two versions of the JVM on the same box, having two different things running. We do this all the time where we currently deploy systems on NixOS. We currently have a log shipper that requires, sadly, Java 1.7. But the services that we ship, like our code, is running on JRE 1.8 equivalent. And so we can set that up. It's actually painless to configure that in NixOS. Attempting to do that on Ubuntu and or um, CentOS in previous gigs was, in fact, a pain. I'll, I'll just say, leave it at pain. So Nix, expression language, but also a deterministic package manager. And then NixOS is the new Linux distribution that is based on top of the package manager. And that's something that uh, I'm currently using to build deterministic development environments, to build um, consistent kind of CI environments for each of the changes. So we make sure that if you've got a change in your code base that upgrades to Ruby whatever new version, right? Even if it's just a patch set version, when you run your tests inside of your CI environment, you are actually using what is expected for that commit. But then if you branch off of uh, master and you don't have that change in there, it's going to be running the old version. So there's uh, some predictability about what environments are actually run. You don't have to have this out of band change management process to update the RVM stuff and then make sure that you're build scripts in Jenkins, use a specific vision or whatever it is. That was a, a nightmare environment that I once worked in. Maybe we'll say that. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> yes, hypothetically speaking. So correct me if I'm wrong. One of the other things it sounded like is that these are all immutable packages as well. So this is like your immutable data structures, but applied to packages because you're capturing the hashes of all the dependencies and rolling those up. So if you've got this version with this version and this version, but you've got Nginx version, whatever, but it's dependent on this Lua version A versus Lua version B, and that's the only difference. You're going to have two technically different versions of Nginx. 
and identified as such because you know that it's not just Nginx 157, but it's got a Lua version of something else underneath, even though you would say, hey, yeah, that's the same Nginx. It's not really, right? Exactly. That is a great way of putting it. Yes. So we're going for a while. I'm sure we could keep going on and on, but just due to time constraints, is there anything we haven't covered and we missed that you want to make sure people know about? Well, I think maybe my personal mission is perhaps to get people interested in investigating what kinds of reasoning they can do from both a pure functional perspective, but also from a a type perspective. And I'll share some articles by other people, actually, that might be interesting to the audience, if that's cool. Yeah, no problem. I was going to ask you for things that you want to recommend and plug and other things you're going on, so we can cover that as well. And we'll get those in the show notes. If you want to pass those off to me, I'll make sure to add those in the show notes. But was there anything else that, as we were talking about, that you want to make mention? Or do you want to just give it an overview of some of those articles before we wrap up? Yeah, sure. So before we wrap up, there's some really great stuff in terms of understanding abstractions. So arrows is, or closely arrows is like one kind of really useful thing that can be used to kind of piece together or fit together lots of different pipes in your system, so to speak, or transformations. So that you can actually build pure data transformations or, or data pipelines, so to speak. And there's a great article called Railway Oriented Programming for the Less Math Inclined that actually doesn't mention arrows or closely arrows or anything like that. And it has like these great visualizations. And I mentioned this because I've been working with a number of people that aren't very familiar with functional programming lately, and they've found it really useful. So I think that would be like uh, really cool. And it gets people thinking more in terms of how we can actually construct these more pure data transformation pipelines in our programs to actually solve problems as far as we possibly can. So that's one. And then there's, um, you know, for example, uh, free monads. Um, there's a really great presentation and talk that John DeGoes did. It's, I think, primarily Scala code. And he does a really great job of going through free functors, free applicatives, and then gets to free monads and the different purposes along the way. And that's another great kind of introduction to thinking about decomposing the problem into more of a compiler problem where you're building basically some kind of abstract stream tree or something like that of instructions and then writing the interpreter separately to actually be able to interpret and perform the actual instructions and and the representation that's given. And that's a really powerful kind of idea. I think uh, John DeGose does a really great job of making that accessible. And there's different ways to encode these kinds of free structures. And I can provide uh, for the more mathematically inclined some, oh, I've forgotten his name, but um, someone who, who works in Haskell uh, quite a bit who recently moved to Berlin, who wrote about different ways of encoding like free monads and things like that. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling on, but uh, I think this is an exciting time to be a part of functional programming and exploring how to use types. So anyway, that's my little spiel. And rambling is perfectly fine, acceptable, and encouraged here. So, (laughs) Okay. And with a bunch of these resources, do you have any good resources for anybody who wants to check more about Nix as well? Oh, yes. So there's uh, nixos.org, which is the official website. 
there is some documentation there. It's a bit more manual style. So if you know what you're looking for, it's a great place to look. If you're not really knowing where to start, there are some great articles. Again, I'll share them with you by someone who goes by Lethalman, who has a blog series on writing Nick's expressions and how to build packages and things like that. And then for those that are more a little more familiar with convergent configuration management systems like Chef, Puppet, and things like that, I put together what I call a, a Nick's cookbook. It's just the start, but it's some material that I put together for some coworkers who come from a very Chef Ubuntu kind of background and trying to translate uh, the different terminology between those ecosystems and the Nix, Nix OS ecosystems. And I'll share that with you too. And it's called the Nix Cookbook. And I'll get those included in the show notes as well. Fantastic. So you do some conference talks. Do you have any upcoming appearances? Are you going to be coming to any conferences in the future or presenting at any conferences in the future? And where can people look for you to be appearing. Do you have any other appearances that are coming up for people to find you? I will be presenting at Strange Loop this year in September. So that's in St. Louis. And I'll be talking about some experiments that I have been working on to use Idris's type providers to eliminate insecure kind of setups based off of a policy. So the idea is that you define a policy for how you want to launch instances, for example, in AWS inside of various VPC subnets and how you apply um, security groups and things like that. And before it even launches any of the instances, it actually checks that it conforms to the actual security policy. So that'll be at Strangeloop. And then later on, I think early October, I'll be at Reactive Summit, which I don't think has been announced yet, but I'll be talking a lot more about NixOS there and building predictable development environments and consistent CI environments and uh, making production deployments more predictable and more reliable. And that sounds something that interests me because from a personal thing of unreliable, unknowable production deployments are something that is frustrating for me of someone who actually enjoys the operations side to some extent as well of knowing how my app is running. So I'll look forward to finding that talk and see and watch that for myself. Cool. So where can people find you and follow you online to keep updated with what's going on? I think probably the easiest is Twitter. I'm Susan Potter on Twitter, and I'm not exclusively tech-focused, but I'm trying to be a bit more on topic. So I'll get back to that. And I'll get those added to the show notes. So to wrap up, do you have any call to action for the listeners after listening to this episode? I think just explore the areas of isolating your code into different parts so that you can switch things out uh, more easily. And this applies even if you're working with object-oriented languages more of the time. There are a lot of patterns that allow you to do this. But then, you know, extending that further to understanding what referential transparency might offer in terms of being able to reason about your code more. If you know that uh, you have all of the inputs in a function to be able to derive the result and you're given the same inputs, you always return the same result, then you have something much more predictable. And that allows you to go on and solve harder and harder problems. And, you know, referential transparency also offers you the ability to compose things and to combine things together and things like that. Those are really powerful ideas that you should go on and explore and maybe check out some of the resources that we mentioned earlier. And those sound like something that can scale across all levels from down to the individual methods or functions all the way up to 
your whole application level and interaction level of your system as well. Yes, absolutely. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Susan, for taking the time to join me today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm sure we could have gone on for another hour or more and dug in deeper to all these topics. So feel free to ping me and we can get you back on in the future if you start finding some more insights or start doing more with Nix because I'm sure it'd be great digging more into Nix and thinking about the functional package management of a system and deploying that functionally with the referential transparency that you were talking about. And just as you go on, if there's more going on, feel free to come back because I'd love to have you as a guest and dig in on some more of these topics. And if not, I'll probably reach out to you in the future as well. So thanks again for talking. It's been enlightening. It's been enjoyable. So thanks for being a guest. Thank you for having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.